Hello and welcome. You are listening to the Investor Lab. I'm your mate, Goose, and you're also with my mate, Charlie. Charlie, how are you? Excellent. Enjoying these conversations as we have been, Goose, really have. So what did we cover in today's episode? We went yang, Charlie. We went super yang. We were just saying this just now. Today's episode, we went we went into the numbers. We spoke about the budget. We spoke about tax cuts. We spoke about my extremely bullish sentiment on the property market. Covered a lot of ground today, Charlie. A little bit different flavor. What do you think? Hugely so, but I felt it was really relevant for that person who is a business owner and does property because really some big things have just happened in Australia that affect you and you need to understand these with the different lenses. Like yeah. you can't just have one cap on. I think these worlds collide isn't? and we covered that well in the episode. Yeah, totally. So we covered all kinds of things about, you know, the velocity of money and the throughputs of uh, fiscal energy that's moving through the system in a variety of different ways, how government stimulus in certain areas affects property and also affects business. We talked about what was missing out of the budget that could have better supported businesses, but also the benefits that businesses have got and how that is going to have an on-flow effect, not only for individual business owners, but for the community and other projects at large. Man, we we covered a lot of ground. And I think it was really good because we had quite a few different opinions on a few different things as well in there. Well, that's what makes it interesting. We're not one and the same. Got to bring that different perspective. Absolutely. Absolutely. So I think this episode is going to be really good for anyone who actually has an interest in the budget. It's not just for business owners, I would say. You know, we did talk about business activities, uh, business benefits in the budget. We also spoke, spoke more broadly just about the budget and stuff. So, you know, even if you're not a business owner, I think there's going to be a very interesting conversation to uh, understand the, the movement of money and how even funding things like COVID vaccines is going to impact the property market. So I think if you have any any interest in fiscal policy, if you have any interest in um, looking into the future, what could potentially be the repercussions, the second and third order consequences of this kind of budget, if you are a business owner, if you're a property investor, if you have any interest in uh, building wealth or understanding how your wealth can be affected right now, I think this is going to be a supremely beneficial episode, don't you, Charlie? Hugely so. And I love that idea. If you're not in business, you should still listen to this because those business owners, they play in that economy that you want to go well if you're in property. So understand them. We're all swimming in the same pool. We're all swimming in the same pool. And just because money goes to just goes to one sector doesn't mean that it only affects one person. I think that's the biggest message that I would say with this. You know, putting money into an infrastructure project helps businesses. Putting money into businesses helps infrastructure projects. That helps people in at large. You know, I think there's a huge interconnection here. And I, and I think that more the more that we understand those kind of connections, I think the better off we'll all be because we understand the benefits and we stop infighting around like who gets what in the economy. So to that degree, should we get into it? Maybe. No, actually, let's do it. All right, let's do it. Look, guys, if you enjoy this episode, and a lot of people have been saying they've been enjoying this series, and also more broadly, all of the other episodes we do on the Investor Lab, which has been awesome. If you're into that, please let us know. We absolutely love getting the feedback. It really helps motivate uh, all of us. We actually share it around. We've got internal slacks and stuff, and we're like, oh my God, this person said this. this. So you get a personal mention inside the team. If you get in touch with us, we actually talk about you offline. So there you go. You're like... You know, like background famous. Now, aside from that, though, <laughs> aside from that, uh, if you enjoy it, please share it with somebody else. Our goal with this podcast, not this this series is around helping business owners to retire wealthy and to, to be able to take money out of their business and live a better life. More broadly, the Investor Lab is about helping people to achieve greater levels of freedom, choice, and abundance. If you have any desire to help anyone achieve those kind of things, make sure you share one of these episodes with them. I'm sure it's going to help them. And in the meantime, make sure you hit subscribe on Apple Podcasts. That would be awesome. And if you need anything at all, a packed lunch, a cup of coffee, or a, a, a spreadsheet to help you calculate the cash flow of your property, just head to theinvestorlab.com.au, get in touch and get access to all the 
free resources and stuff there. We'll see you on the inside. Hey guys, welcome back to the Investor Lab Property and Business Series. My name's Goose Charlie. How are you? Excellent. So, so excellent. Do you want to know why I'm excellent? Of course I want to know why you're excellent. I feel like government's just handing out dollar dollar bills. Man, were you watching the budget? I don't watch, I do not watch, I don't have, like we don't actually get television. Like we don't have it hooked up. Like we have a TV, occasionally we watch some Netflix, whatever. We don't actually get television. So I was like, man, how do I even watch? So I jumped online and I actually watched, I jumped on and watched the TV online. It's the first time I'd watched TV in a really long time, even though I was doing it from the computer. But man, did you actually watch the budget? I did, but I think we have to change the name. We'll call it The Spending. I'm not there sure that- much, There wasn't much budgeting going on. Yeah, I don't think there was any at all. <laughs> no, it was, it was a tremendous cash splash. Now, it's really interesting though, because well, you know what? Before I start on that soliloquy, what did you think? I'll be honest. I feel like there was, in my opinion, this is just my humble opinion here. I think there's a massive, massive overcorrection. I think the government is particularly worried about understimulating, and I think they've gone in with the intention of there's two options here. We can either go in light or go in heavy, and they've gone in extremely heavy mm-hmm. because they don't want to fall short here. So that is that is my kind of perspective. There was way more given than I expected. I'm actually a little bit concerned they've given so much that it's going to increase the entitled attitude of Australia, in a way, I think there's going to be a lot more people wanting more handouts and more things, which I don't think is good. Mm-hmm. But overall, I would just say it just seemed to me like, you know, there's that uh, mem that floats around with Oprah where she's like, and you get a car yeah. and you get a car. Th- that When I was watching it, that's what I felt like was going on. It's like, oh, you're in this demographic or class or state or whatever it is. You get this and you get this. And I was like, wow, this is just full on. That was my experience anyhow. How did you receive it? I mean, I thought it was so exciting. I thought it was awesome. And I, it's really interesting because um, I think there, there's there's quite a lot of people who are saying, oh, my God, I think we've overspent. We're going to be in debt for generations. Our kids are going to suffer. Um, and I just can't see it. I think it's – I think it's. Um, I'm just going to say it plainly. I think it's a freaking stupid mentality because even, even when we – like, so when we look at the – firstly, and I've been saying this for months. Like, I was saying this – it, all the way back in March, at the start of the pandemic, when all this started, stuff started hitting, I started looking deep into fiscal policy and and all and how much room we had to move in terms of a, a country to be able to get through this. So my opinion is, I've always known that this big spend was coming. This is not a it was not a surprise to me at all. In fact, if people go back through this podcast, you'll probably hear numerous episodes where I talk about it's coming and it's probably going to come around September or October and they're probably going to pump heaps of money into it, et cetera. So for me, it was not a big shock at all, but also I don't think they actually have overcommitted and I don't think they've overspent. I, I, I think, I understand what you're saying though. They could have, we probably could have skimmed the pond out of the recession without spending so much money, I think. I think that would have been possible. I think we're actually probably on track to do that before they did a lot of these announcements. So have they, in terms of like uh, creating a recessionary buffer, did they potentially over overspend? Yes, but did they overspend in the context of our what our economy can uh, fully support and what you know is it going to make us unhealthy? You know, have we have we taken too much of a sugar hit? Are we going to get diabetes? I don't think so. And the reason for that perspective is. You know, when we look at what the total 
debt to GDP ratio is going to be. I think it's we're up, going to be up to about 1.7 trillion. I think from memory, um, that's still only about 50, 51 percent of GDP. If I'm, I don't have all the numbers in front of me. I you know, don't have stats here, but it's only about half, roughly half. Now, when we look at other developed nations around the world, they're often running at 80 to 110 percent debt to GDP ratio. So we're still. We like we're still the lean, fit machine in the global economy, and so all of these people who are saying, "Oh my God, we're bankrupting the country," we didn't need to do. It. I, th- I think it's totally stupid. It's like we're actually just putting enough fuel into the fire. Our country has the ability to to scale right now, and that's I think what's going, what's going to happen. I think from from my perspective, I think it's tremendously exciting. For, as a business person, there's a huge amount of benefits for for business people. And when I look at other business people, I'm like, man, there's so many people I know are going to benefit from this in a way that is meaningful, not in a way of like, ha, 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 I get more money. It's like, oh my God, there's relief. There's tailwinds that are here. We've finally arrived. We've gone through this really challenging period. Now we actually get to just take a big deep breath and go, okay, everything's going to be okay. You know, we've been starved. We've been dehydrated in the desert and we've finally found the oasis and we've got some water. I think it's awesome. From a property perspective, I think it's... I, 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 so, let, so let's go there. Let's break this down because it's really interesting because I think we may have some uh, areas we see differently or um, in different areas, good. but you just highlighted something. Yeah, and I want to talk about it as well. Good. But let's – because I think we can see the budget of this broad, as this broad topic, right? We see it as this massive thing and there's all these numbers, but it's kind of like this cause and effect relationship. So these are all the causes that are going to be and they're going to affect different areas differently. Yeah. I think there's really, really interesting ideas that come out of them, but I want to start with property and then we'll do some business ones. Based on what you've seen from the budget so far, Mm. is there anything that stands out to you that is either like headwind or tailwind for property or anything you're particularly excited or wish they had done better? I tend not to live in a place where I think about what I wish people would do better. So I can't answer. I honestly couldn't speak to that. I don't. I haven't gone. Well, you know what? It would have been really good if they did this other thing because I just tend not to think in that in that way. But what I would say is, there's some obvious. There's some obvious ones. You know, there's there's extensions of the home builder, or so the first home loan deposit scheme, and all of that kind of stuff. There's kind of like the direct property related stuff, which. Whilst it seems like it's directly for property, it's actually directly for the construction industry. So there's a little bit of a differentiation there. It's, it's more of an industry stimulus than it is a housing stimulus, so to speak. So the way that I think about how this uh, holistically has affected and will affect uh, the property market is, is like this. There's pretty much money in Australia always flows to property. Like that's that's our greatest asset vehicle for for everyone in Australia. It's the most commonly held uh, asset class. It's got the most amount of wealth tied up in it, all of that kind of stuff. Money flows towards property. So every time you cut a tax, every time you um, stimulate, you, you put money into health. So for example, let's have a look at uh, some of the the health spending. So you know, there's 2.3 billion in announced funding for investment into COVID nineteen treatments and vaccines. Well, that's going, to, that's going to affect housing. You might be like, what? Hang on, that's money for vaccines. It's like, yes, but that's money for researchers. That's money for universities. That's money for distribution chains. That's money for businesses. That's money. And that money, that generates jobs. That generates um, distribution of revenue. That, distri- uh, that creates, you know, uh, uh, the, you know, the, what is it? The, um, the movement of money, the, 
Velocity. Velocity, that's the word I'm looking for. It stimulates the velocity of money, which is which was the one thing. It's been the one thing that's been slowing down the economy. The economy over the past uh, you know, six months or so, through this whole period since March, has it's not been a case of not having enough money. Australia has had enough money. There's been plenty of money. Like we didn't lose money. The money didn't disappear. That didn't happen. It stopped moving. That was the biggest throttle on our economy was the velocity of money and the fact that it wasn't moving around. So when I see all of these kind of things that are seemingly disparate and seemingly like, oh, we're putting money into education. Yep, that affects property because all of the money flows that way when you increase the velocity of it because it, consumer confidence increases, um, you know, the fluidity increases, uh, say, people stop saving as much because the moment saving rates have gone up, which is great because people are saving more. That's awesome. You know, financial, like personal finance is fantastic, but at the end of the day, spending money is what keeps keeps the world going around. So then when people start to feel more confident and happy, there's greater levels of prosperity, they spend more. And guess what? They tend to spend on property in the end, all the money flows that way. So I, I look at it holistically and I see all of the different areas that money was put in. And I'm just saying tick, 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 tick for me. What about you? Interesting. Very interesting. I, I mean, when you frame it up like that, it is quite interesting how you can see that even things like health actually make a difference to property. I think that's a very fascinating insight I probably hadn't considered. For, for me, when I look at it from, I suppose, the biggest level, and I'm in Victoria, so I see a lot more Victorian news, the thing that stood out to me was probably the construction side of it, how much they're going to push yep. into uh, construction and new homes. Now, one of the things I've kind of been thinking about there, though, is like, did they just bring forward demand or did they create new demand in doing this? So these first home buyers that they're doing all these packages for, I would make the assumption or I would say I would guess, but like wouldn't these people buy houses naturally anyway over the next few years? Have they just brought all that demand forward and is that the whole point of that? But in reality, maybe you see it differently, but I'd love to know what you think there, Goose. You can't create demand it is. It's a. It's an impossibility. So it was one of the one of the great marketers. I think it might have been um, Eugene Schwartz, potentially. Uh, Good marketer. Who's a fantastic marketer. He said that the you can never create demand. Demand exists, and the only thing you can ever do is position yourself either in front of it or behind it by creating the right environment or the right in his context the right messaging. And I truly believe that you're not gonna you are not gonna suddenly convince someone to uh, buy a house if it is not something that they organically develop that that desire to want to do. So if you said to someone, so for example, if you said to 20-year-old me, Goose, mate, there's all these tax benefits and there's all this kind of stuff and you could go buy a house. You could like, there's $20,000 and you could go buy a house. Yes, $20,000 towards your deposit. I'd probably at 20 years old, I would have been like, dude, why would I want to do that? Why would I want to do that? I don't want to do that. So you can't create demand, but what you can do is you can create the opportunity for that demand to flow more freely. And I think that that's what's happened. So I think with in regards to housing, housing is one of those things that we can look at it from an investment perspective and we can look at it from a, a basic human need. So when you look at Maslow's hierarchy of needs, you know, shelter is at the bottom, you know, like, like a lot of people don't want to rent. I love renting. I'm happy. I'm a, I'm a happy rent vester. Um, I don't, and I, you know, I'm, I'm cool with that. But for a lot of people, they don't want to rent. They want to own. And part of the reason they haven't been able to own is an affordability issue. So stimulating that actually just soaks up some of the existing demand. And when we then look at then then look at what the, the second and third order consequences of that are, you might say, oh my God, but then there's going to be no renters. Well, at the moment, nationally, we have a rental crisis. You know, nationally, vacancy rates are below 1%. 
Actually, that's not entirely. Wow. That's not. That's just to give that context, three percent is like equal. There's three percent uh, vacancy. Then the supply de- demand is relatively balanced. Anything lower than that is would be a shortage. Yeah. yeah. Anything higher than that would be a surplus. To- yeah, totally. So uh, I was slightly wrong there. I'll correct myself in a second. But yeah, three percent is equilibrium. Two percent is extremely tight, as in like there's not enough rental properties for the amount of people who want them. One percent is considered crisis levels. Now. It's actually nationally higher than 1%, but that's when you're factoring Sydney and Melbourne because they do have some uh, vacancy rate increases. But if you exclude Sydney and Melbourne, it's below 1%. So what, what we have right now is we have a rental crisis plus we have a housing crisis. There are not enough houses currently to meet the demand. Right, So it's not even just about creating more houses and, oh, my God, what happens if we have too many? Even with net migration uh, being, being you know, like falling off a cliff because we can, we're not having inter- net international migration, then we still have a huge housing shortage. You know, we're hundreds of thousands of properties short of how many people actually desire them in this country. So even if you transition some people out of the rental market into the home ownership market, there is still going to be enough demand in the rental market for, to soak that up and to keep that in a, in a good equilibrium. So we've got a long way to go before that balances out. I certainly don't see there being any, um, you know, any cliffs on the horizon. I think there's too much bandwidth. And I think a lot of people uh, misunderstand the amount of bandwidth there is. They misunderstand the amount of bandwidth there is uh, financially in the economy. They hear things like um, stimulus and they think, oh my God, inflation, not going to happen. You know, they, they hear things like, oh my God, we have no international migration. That means we're going to have a housing oversupply and the housing market's going to flip upside down. It's like, well, we actually have hundreds and hundreds of thousands less properties than we actually need to house the amount of people in our country. There's just, there is a lot of room to go. Isn't that interesting how um, the media or certain channels will play that up without the data? I found this really interesting. If you were in capital city apartments, like major city apartments, you probably are in oversupply right now. There's probably more apartments than there yeah. are people looking for apartments. Yep. But I was just thinking about this, and it's really, really interesting. I've had a few experiences in my life at the moment where it's like there's actual people moving out of the cities that want their own detached yep. houses, like detached houses in, I imagine, most states at the moment. Um, that movement of people is creating different demand as well. And I've had quite a few friends either try and escape the city and they're buying properties more regionally out. And then more recently, I have a friend who his property got snapped up so quickly above what he was asking for because it was out of the city. And I just look at that movement alone has the ability to create different demand within a property market. You know what's really interesting, Charlie? Uh, Interstate migration causes larger... Uh, shifts in the national economy than inter- international migration. How interesting. Yeah. So people like people moving from Victoria to Queensland, there are more people who move interstate. So interstate migration has a higher a higher influence by volume. So total number of people that are moving to an area that want to buy or rent houses. There are more people who move interstate. So Australians that move around the country than there are even even before COVID than people coming in from overseas. So everyone talks about inter- international migration as being the driver of the housing market, and it's just not true. It's interstate migration. So as soon as borders start opening up again, which they are, and as soon as money starts to flow through the system, which it is, we are inevitably going to see a thriving and booming housing market. In fact, you know, I don't want to sound like a property spruker or anything like that, but I just there is. I actually can't see a situation where we're not entering into uh, a next, the next property property market boom. There's quite a few bears out there, right? Who would say the opposite? What makes you 
confident? Just this whole environment? What makes you so enthusiastically confident in that statement, Goose? Because that's a bold statement. Yeah, it is a bold statement. But I think that I think it's based on it's based on data for a start. I think there is I think there are some places in this country that you wouldn't want to be spending money, certainly not in the next few years. And so to say that every place, every house in the country is going to go up equally and it's going to be a booming market everywhere would be a fallacy and a lie. However, however, when we look at the aggregate um, data across all states and everything like that, I mean, we saw in the last, we saw in, the, in September, we saw every capital city and every regional area in Australia, aside from Sydney and Melbourne, go up in value. You know, Bloody Melbourne. Yeah, Melbourne. Yeah, Melbourne's down about ten percent. Even Sydney's. Hey, hey, hey. Even Sydney. He's up. We're we're due for a strong comeback. I have faith. Totally. But like, here's but here's the thing. You know, property markets are already going up. Even Sydney, which has been in decline, has been one of the two capital cities that have declined. Sydney and Melbourne, the only two. Even it is starting to plateau and flatten out. So so we're already going to see that starting to turn around as well. Now, my belief. This is a belief and I'm not going to, you know, this is my belief is that Sydney is not going to see the same amount of growth as it did in the last 10 years. I don't believe that. I think that I think that the growth growth for the next five years has already been priced into the market there. So I would not be, even though, even if it flattens out and even if it starts to grow incrementally, I don't think that it's going to see the same gains that other cities are. So when we then start looking at other cities like Adelaide, Perth, Brisbane, places like this, where there is there has been a much more concerted effort even pre-COVID to stimulate those economies. Then when you then lump in all the all of the new funding, you know, you're going to see these these um these markets scream ahead because the value has not yet been priced in. You know, we can see markets where you can buy houses that have got 70 to 90% land value, which to put that in context means if you're buying a three hundred thousand dollar house and it's 70% land value, then you're basically you, you, you know, $250,000 of that is dirt and $50,000 of that is house, for example, you're pretty much buying the dirt and getting a free house. That is an undervalued market where the, where the value has not yet been priced in. So when we can start to see these economies where, you know, micro economies where money is flowing directly for jobs, new infrastructure projects, stuff that has been announced in the new, in the, in the budget. Then when you see tax cuts to businesses, then when you see tax cuts to individuals, which puts more cash in the everyday Australians' pockets. Then when you see stimulus towards first-time buyer schemes, which in turn stimulates construction industry and drives further activity because where you get more buyer, more first-time buyer activity, other businesses sprout up as well, corner stores, a new Bunnings, these kind of things create more jobs as well. That then puts more flow of the money back in as well. Then people start to think, okay, well, I've got my first home and maybe now it's time for me to start thinking about an investment. And you start, and it creates this, creates this environment where you sort of can't go backwards from. Now, the only things that you really need to think about is is like what are, what are the what is the impetus of the bears to keep keep saying the world's going to end? Now, typically, typically, it's because they've gotten a, a little bit um, hung up on their own ego because they've been in the spotlight for the last six months and everyone's been listening to what they've been saying and they've they've caught the they've caught the bug where they want to be at the center, center of attention. And I think that I think that they're just saying things for the sake of getting attention. I genuinely do. I saw an article yesterday in some tabloidal media that said, I didn't even read the article. I saw the headline and the headline was why Australia's property market is going to crash by 80%. Wow. What a headline. And I was like, this is just, it's just nonsense. So there's a few key factors when you see vacancy rates, and this is a key factor you can apply to a single suburb, right? But we can also apply this to, to the whole country right now. When you see vacancy rates declining, 
as in continually going down, not just low, not just like, okay, they are low, but when they are continuously trending downwards over the course of six months to two years, a continuous tightening of supply of rental markets, then you know that rental demand is going up relative to the amount of properties there are. So you know that you're creating a, an increasing gap. Then when you see then when you see uh, rents rising uh, in line with median house uh, rents rising in relation to median house prices, you know that the, the demand is definitely going up. Not just you know that's that's another sign that the demand is going up as well. That's a precursor to growth. You can see that in so many markets around the country right now. Then when you start to see you know, days on market decreasing. They're extremely short at the moment. I, I speak to other professionals in the industry and I've speak to them in five or six different states and they're all saying very similar things. Oh, 63 people at an open home today, 72 people at an open home today. Well, yeah, we had 50 people at the open home and four- and- can, I, can I throw one in? Yeah. My friend, right? So Victoria is in lockdown. You yeah. can only do private inspections, only private inspections. On the day it opened, eight people privately inspected were booked in on the day. Yeah. So the, And I'm like, What? So they had to leave their house for the day, don't know, within a five-kilometre radius, of course. Um, <laughs> and then, like, it's that hectic. And that's not uncommon in even my own circles to hear things like that at the moment. Well, I was on a mastermind call um, with a group of other real estate professionals this week, and one of them said that one of the properties that they were trying to buy for a client, uh, there was 63 people attended the open home, and of those 63 people, 40 put in an offer. It doesn't match, Goose. Where's this 80%? <laughs> I, don't, I don't know. So here's the thing. There is demand there. There is pent-up demand there. We currently have a housing shortage. We currently have a rental shortage. And then what the government has done is said, well, why don't we just give everyone money? Let's find a heap of different ways to move money around the system, not just as, not just as a, hey, here's a handout. But let's look, at the, let's look at the total amount of money. Right? Let's look at the total amount of stimulus because it's not all about cash in your hand. It's cash in the system. This is what we've got to think about. You know, you, the, you got to think about the economy as a circulatory system. And it's, and it's like where they're injecting vitamins and stuff all over the body and getting everything in pretty good shape. So rather than saying, hey, everyone just have some cash, they've gone, all right, we're going to give you some cash, but then we're also going to put some cash over here. So it comes to you in a different way at a different time. It's going to carry with it different benefits along the way. So in the GFC, we were one of the only countries, if not the only country, to avoid a recession when the rest of the world plummeted into it. The Americans call it the Great Recession. They call it the Great Recession. It was like the biggest economic decline since, since the Great Depression. Over here, we just go, oh, it was just the GFC. We kind of cruised through it. Why? Because we pumped $52 billion of liquidity into the system, $52 billion. Currently committed to date. And this is not even all of it. There's still more coming. I guarantee you there is still more stimulus coming. But to date, there's been $507 billion worth of stimulus through tax cuts, direct injection, um, cash banks, uh, industry support, or like $507 billion in a nation where there's only about 23 million people. That is a lot of money per capita to be pumped into a system. Where do you think that money's going to go? It's not like it's not like water. It doesn't evaporate. It has to move. Money likes to move. So what do you think is going to happen? It's really interesting. There, w- there was two things that stood out to me, which I particularly made me more, I would say, bullish or in favour of property. And this is where it stands out is like uh, for, for the people in my life, what actually makes the biz- biggest difference for them yeah. is at the end of the week, how much money's left over. So I earn this, we spend this, what's left over? And I thought there's kind of been two triggers that have been pulled in more recent times that have really changed that. 
So number one is the tax cuts. Yep. So I was looking at the numbers and I think if you earn about a hundred grand, you're about $50 a week better off. So there's $50 a week in your pocket, roughly, like don't hold me to it. I'm sure we can get better maths, but like it's, it's significant. Yep. That's, so that's um, about, and that's about two, two and a half grand a year, roughly. Yeah, roughly. It might actually be a touch more on being conservative. Yeah. But that $50 a week um, is significant. It's not a small amount over a year. And I, I look at that and go, that person that has that extra $50 a week is in a better position on weekly spend. And then the other one is interest rates. Like I have seen the banks in more recent time, and I'm sure they're in cahoot and talking to each other as if the RBA doesn't talk to the banks. And the oh, no, banks they do. The that's, part of the, that's part of their, their strategic monetary policy. They do that actively. Hugely. So, I, I mean, it's already started to vocalise that they're expecting a rate cut um, in November or at another time soon, and I've already seen like CBA and ING go to war. Like I saw a mortgage rate at 1.89% yeah. with one of them. And I look at that and I go, if you're a homeowner right now and you're seeing this double whammy of your mortgage is like at 2% when you're used to it being at 5 and then on the other side is you're getting a $50 a week, potentially more, that's on like single income. Yeah. Like if you both got uh, 80 grand incomes or 100 grand incomes or whatever it is, like you're probably seeing more than that. Per week, there's probably more than $100 a week that you didn't have. And I really think compounded, that's very game-changing to a lot of families. Like that extra $100 a week is a significant difference that they didn't have to do anything for. And I can see that being spent. I can see it going into mortgages. I can see it changing economies in having that amount of cash in at the right level. I think it's in the right place, in my opinion. I think the government actually made a great move there rather than doing certain incentives. They, to your point, put it in the hands of people that are in those positions because they're the ones that buy here. So conversely, I think that money is going to go potentially into property. I think people are going to try and buy the homes they want and upscale and have families and everything that comes with it. Totally. I had a great conversation um, uh, last night with with a lovely lady who is coming to work with us. She's already got six properties, right? So, um, but she's like, you know what, Goose, uh, um, I've just been stabbing in the dark really and I want some help. So I'm going to come work with you guys. Fantastic. Now, She's awesome. She's very intelligent. Um, she understands the 18-year property cycle, which we could talk to at, a, at another point because there's a whole other topic in that. Um, but she said to me, well, you know, uh, interest rates are so low. So what I'm going to do right now, because we've for the next six years, the market is going to boom. We know this. She, in the conversation, she was very confident with that as well. And uh, so she's like, I'm going to buy the family home now so I can ride that growth for the next um, five to six years because interest rates are so insanely low. So it's not really going to cost me much to hold that property and it's not going to affect my serviceability as much as it, as it would have in the past. So I can afford to do that now and still keep growing my property portfolio so that over the next six years, we can get to the point that then we can recapitalize and when in six years time, we don't have to work anymore. So it's creating a unique environment where people can actually start to go, well, actually, why don't I go buy the dream home now and also still do the other things? You know, you can get interest-only mortgage rates for uh, less than 3% now, which is just crazy. You know, like it's almost it's almost impossible to not make money. Like it is, there's 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 a crazy um, confluence of, of activity right now that is creating putting more cash in people's hand now so that they can spend it in ways that is going to put more cash in their hand again so we're getting a double payback you know and then when we look at things like 
when we look at things like the the tax cuts and the tax benefits to business as well, you know, I see that having a huge benefit because that's going to allow for some some businesses that I've spoken to who maybe haven't had good years the previous couple of years and they finally come good, but they still can't get any finance because they need two years of good books and all of that kind of stuff. Now they're able to claim 100% of their losses from, from previous years in benefits this year without having to wait to claim it on future profits. You know, these are these all of these things that are actually moving money around in a really beneficial way that has second and third order consequences, which is what I really, really like about it. One of the other things that I really, really, really liked was that the funding that has been distributed for infrastructure to states is being given out on the basis of who can spend it the fastest. Now, the velocity of- the vol- good, good policy, good policy. So good. That's interesting. It is so good because- there's, there's kind of two lenses to this. You know, I, I've come from a very socialist um, kind of background, you know, very uh, very community-centric socialist kind of, kind of orientation. So when I, look at, when I look at this, I'm like, dude, that is awesome. There's more money going into projects for more jobs, for more, all this kind of stuff. It, I think that there's, there's great benefits from a social perspective because there's more money being moved into those areas, which is going to stimulate better economies, create more jobs, you know, create, create more opportunities for the proletariat, but also create more opportunities for business owners to generate more employment opportunities. And it's going to create an environment where there should theoretically be better conditions and better standards of pay, better all of that kind of stuff because there's more liquidity and less less financial stress within these different sectors. So I think it's um I think it's awesome. You brought up something interesting there, really really interesting. I want to flip the conversation here too. Like we've spoken a lot about the property side of the budget yep. and how we think it'll be affected. Um, I think there's some really important points there that if you are a property owner should give you some confidence, in my opinion anyway. It's given me some confidence. But the business side, I think this is the more interesting one and I think this is where we might have more varying uh, views or looks at here. I'm going to put it out there that I don't think it was actually the best budget for business owners. Mm. This is probably the area I have the most gripe with. Uh, And I'll explain. There's some wins and I want to talk about the wins first, but then there were some things that, in my opinion, I, I really think we should reconsider. I think we missed the mark. Really do. Great. I'd love to know what they are. We'll start with the wins. I thought one of the best things in the budget was the instant depreciation. I thought if you're a company doing under five, I think it's under five billion. They basically eliminated (laughs) everyone except the miners. Yeah, the miners and banks were the only ones that were excluded. Yeah, yeah. Yeah, you can instantly depreciate assets. I thought that was a really good move because I think there's a lot of uh, businesses out there that that's an incentive where they'll, they'll buy things. They'll buy equipment, they'll buy plant, they'll start moving money and increasing that velocity of money to uh, do things and it makes it so much easier as a business owner to make those moves. Yeah. So just to bring some context to that to people that maybe don't understand is previously if you'd spent $100,000 on something, you would uh, depreciate that over a number of years and only see the tax benefits over a number of years, it might be three, it might be five, uh, where now you can uh, depreciate or write that off in one year. And then they also increase the amount you can depreciate. It's pretty much, I'm sure there is a cap to it, but they've just basically just removed. It's just like, buy what you need. Yeah. It's uh, very, very, which I think is so interesting because it used to be like two and a half grand and I, then they I, put I, it up I, to 10 grand. I think it's, I kind of, and I'm pretty, it's up to 150,000, I think. Pretty sure it's up. That was at last year. I think that's going to change again. I think they're lifting it again. They're really, really going for it. But it was up to 150 at last time I checked. But like literally, I remember being in business where it was like, 
I, and I know this sounds interesting, but I used to go to the tool shop. And, um, this is back years ago when I was a plumber and I would have to buy items separately so I could depreciate them in that year because if I bought a bundle, it would go over the cap and I'd have to depreciate over, over a number. And I'm sure there was people out there doing or looking at things like that. It was just silly. Um, but I look at that and just go, that's going to change spending in itself. Mm. The second thing I think they did really well is obviously the tax cuts. I think that's a really good thing for business. And I'm not sure a lot of people are aware, but like compared to overseas, Australia's um, tax is incredibly high. Mm. And it's not so much a problem if you're just operating within Australia, but if you, like me, are operating in the world, that tax rate is like being kneecapped when you go into competition with companies overseas. So we play this very, very different game. So I'm thrilled that there was a little bit of competitiveness put into it, but- Two policies I'm really a big fan of, and I'm thrilled we're starting to bring in are definitely there. Yeah, I think no, I think I think they're very good. I think another thing, and I'm very keen to hear what you think was bad about it. But one of the other things I was throwing there, aside from the, the those kind of like direct business uh, uh, interventions or or incentives, was actually the the trainee programs. So to encourage more employment. See, I think one of the one of the biggest assets for any business is to is to build a great team. But one of the biggest um, uh, inhibitors of growth is the cost of building a team. You know, you've got the expensive training at the expense of hiring, you've got all the super and all of that kind of stuff. But they've created the incentive where they'll actually cover half of the half of the wage for trainees and apprentices, which is going to encourage more businesses to take on more young people, which is which to give them more skills and to train them up in business. I know personally that when I when I saw that, I was like, ooh, that's really interesting because potentially we could take on some uh some trainees and actually train them up to be buyers agents and to do all that kind of stuff and take them on without having the necessarily the cost risk associated with doing that or certainly a, you know certainly a buffered risk. I love that as well. To be honest, I thought that was a really good one. Yeah, I, I think that's great. Um, I mean, I did an apprenticeship. I'm, a, I'm actually you know I'm a plumber. I've done my plumbing apprenticeship and it was it gave me very great skills in life that have been universal in many other endeavors. I wish more people had the experience I had. Yeah. I think it would benefit them immensely in life. Uh, but I'll tell you right now, even in that experience, um, from my boss's perspective at those times, hiring an apprentice was in a very hard endeavor. It wasn't easy for yeah. them. So I think it's a really good thing that we're encouraging more of that. I really do. Yeah, yeah, I agree. I agree. So tell, tell me then, what is it that you didn't like about the, the business benefits? Oh, now we come to where Charlie gets to step on some toes. Uh, from from my perspective, there was a few things I, I think we haven't done well. Is number one, I don't think the budget particularly made it easier for people to start new businesses. I think that was probably neglected in a way. And I look at this right now, mm. and I look at all these cafe owners, all these gyms, all these businesses that have been particularly hit hard and are going to have to readapt and do things differently. And I think people looking to do new things were kind of left out. So, how can I ask? How would you? How would you have done that differently? Like what kind of incentive do you think would have been, would have made it easier or what would you have liked to have seen to encourage uh, more entrepreneurship in the country? Well, that, that's a really good question in itself. And as a bigger idea, I'll go into it from there. But I really think that um, we should be looking at more grant structures mm. to incentivize the right types of businesses starting in Australia. And I'll give some examples of why I think this is so and what we could be doing there. But I don't feel like that area was particularly well served. And I honestly think, this is my opinion here, I think Australia's become a bit of a dinosaur. I don't think we're innovating enough at all. I think we're too reliant on uh, industries. And if you look at our ASX, it's like banks, 
miners and Telstra. <laughs> and I'm like, we're, we're not in line at all to these future companies. And I don't think we're particularly even starting them because, uh, and I think that's a real danger. So I would have loved to have seen us push more into that. Uh, I really would have loved to have seen that. The second component to go within that is like, there's still no mention of digital businesses or how we're treated or what mm. we're doing. And I, I'm still, I, I want to say it was a bit neglected. So to give people an idea, like I'm in media, like I have a media company. We serve people all over the world, help them build podcasts and YouTube channels and all kinds of fun stuff. But I'm an ex, I export, like I'm exporting IP. Like I'm just the same guy who sends a piece of freight offshore for someone to sell and consume and bringing money into the country. We're the same. Like I'm exporting IP and code and video and all kinds of things to people overseas and I'm spending that money in Australia. Now, it, it might just be my odd logic here, but I would think if we could export more code, export more ideas, innovate in a way that serves digital businesses better, that would be a really good thing for the country. And what makes it worse is there's a ton of gun uh, virtual and digital entrepreneurs out there in Australia mm. that given the right support, they'll make it like an absolute dint in what's going on on a global scale. And as it stands currently, any Australian that does come up with anything good digitally moves overseas because that's where the infrastructure and support is. And we've seen this with like Atlassian. We've seen this with many of our best entrepreneurs end up heading to Silicon Valley and things like that. And I'm like, at some point, I would love to see Australia really look after its digital entrepreneurs and yeah, create that. I, I, I'll put it up now. Adelaide. I want Adelaide. I, I, I want the whole city renamed to Silicon Adelaide. <laughs> um, <laughs> um, I, I joke, of course, although not really. Like I, they've already kind of started that there. Yeah. But I would love to see us move more of the shift from just infrastructure and projects like that, which are important, don't get me wrong, but I think long-term these are the things that I would love to see Australia doing better. It's really That's really interesting because um, uh, separately to this, I had a conversation yesterday with um, uh, a BDM from a, an angel investing company, right? So, and we were talking about angel investing and right, what kind of businesses would be suitable for an angel to invest in and et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. And naturally, um, and part part of their part of their logic around what types of businesses would be suitable would be businesses that could have a global reach. And I sort of pulled them up. I said, "Well, why does that? Why is that a prerequisite? Like, big, you know, what size of company you did, can you cannot grow a company big enough in Australia?" I said, "How big does a company need to be?" And they said, "Well, you sort of want it to be able to grow to a hundred million or a billion, you know, so that you get the multiples on your return on investment as an angel investor, etc." It's like okay, well, there's plenty of country companies in Australia that do 100 million, but they basically the basic the narrative of the conversation was that in order for any business, digital business, which is where you're going to have the um, the greatest profit, um, stability, liquidity, and global reach, for any of them to make any to make uh, to make it anywhere, they're going to have to end up going to the states. So what they were trying to do is go, well, we want to try and encourage more people to get to seek all levels of funding here in Australia, so they don't have to keep going to the states. So that kind of lends into your point there that some of the more innovative companies, the ones that are really moving in the digital world are, as they're getting bigger, having to go overseas to get the support that they need, whether it be publicly or privately. I um, used to do some uh, presenting at an incubator in Victoria mm. and I met a guy there and like his whole business was basically to get you ready to go to the States. Like it's his whole, whole life is like, sweet, we're going to get you ready so we can go over and actually get money. And I remember sitting there and I'm like, wait, 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 you're telling me your whole job is to prep Australia's best talent to leave. And I'm like, 
that's got to be broken. Like that can't actually be the best move for Australia. And I'm like, why Why are we not being the ones to fund these companies? Mm. Why are we not doing that? And um, that was probably where I would say my biggest disappointment was across all this. I'll throw in another one. I'll throw in another one that I think is, is really important to bring into the conversation here. I would love to hire more Australians. I really would. I think that uh, there's so many talented people in Australia, but the barriers to do that seem to only actually be getting higher, not lower. And I, I sit there and as a business owner, I go, if I can automate someone's role so I don't have to hire them, that's where I'm incentivized at the moment. I really am where it's like I look at the HR costs, the insurance costs, the minimum wage, all these things uh, that come into it and not only that, just the risks that come with it. And it really makes me second guess hiring people. I have Mm. to be really, really certain of it. And I I would love to see ways of that being changed or incentivized so Australian businesses can hire more Australians. We don't have to seek offshore or automation options. Yeah, that's, that's interesting. How would you see that playing out, though? Would that would you see that as more uh, incentives for business, or would you see that more of as uh, a universal minimum wage, where where there was less need for businesses to like? So basically, if people already had a certain uh, universal minimum wage, that it would create less kind of stress point in the marketplace where where you could kind of afford to take people on at a lower rate and all of that kind of. How would you kind of see that playing out? There's a few different ways I could see that. So this is the one I'm going to say that this is one where I've identified the problem, not the solution. Okay, cool. I think I've very well recognised what I would want. I don't know how to overcome this. Yeah, it's, it's not some something I've been able to do, but I do know this for sure is that as long as we exist in a world where it's uh, like for me right now, I look at this and go, and I'll use a, a one that many consider. We hire video editors uh, for on certain projects and things all the time. I can literally go and get someone for like 15 bucks an hour offshore right now. Yes, such a these. capitalist, Charlie. I know, but if I want that same person in Australia, it's like 50 bucks. Yeah. And it's like you would say, well, we'll limit- um, just charge more. And then it's like, well, that's fine until we're trying to go for work overseas and then we're uncompetitive. Well, no, hang on. I would even say it, it's fine. It's fine. But even in Australia, there's a there's a price cap in the marketplace of what people will afford to pay. So what it does is stifle innovation, right? It stifles your creativity and innovation as a company. Like I, I know this firsthand because my uh, ambition and my creativity – is far beyond what our business can tolerate because we can't price it into the market, you know, and, and, and if it were more readily available, we'd be able to do even more amazing stuff. Um, so I know I, I would say it's not even just about being overseas competitive. I, I would say that it's not just simply charge more. You can't just continuously charge more because there's the consumer end of the business relationship, which is, it's a two way, it's a two way street. So, so I want to ask you now, Charlie, then based on all of this, I agree with your points, by the way. I think they were good points. Based on all of this, how do you think that this budget, we've sort of gone into the budget quite a lot here. How do you think this budget specifically is going to impact business owners and more specifically into that, how do you think it might help business owners to uh, you know, increase profit, build wealth outside of the business, um, create greater, you know, uh, future potential, etc. You know, talking into the the purpose of our podcast, which is to help business owners to be able to retire wealthy, to to transfer their profits into real wealth, and all of that kind of stuff. How do you see this playing out? I think as a business owner and a property investor, what I did, like the big message I just got is that we've got you back. Mm. We will literally throw the kitchen sink at this. Mm. Like we are not scared. We will 
rather go too far than too short. Mm. And when I look at that, I think that it has probably increased confidence immensely. Even like, I mean, I'm one tiny drop of water in this ocean that is Australia of business owners, but I know many of us on the back of this uh, sitting there in the same boat of going, okay, well, we can be confident in going back into growth mode. This year has been a lot of uncertainty in how to play it, how to run with it. Should I be cutting back? Should I be growing? Should we be trying to just hold our position? And I think that confusion and uncertainty has left a lot of us not making the moves we probably would have if the year was different. Mm. So the way I'm looking at this is they're saying, guys, swing for the fence. Let's do this. We've got your back. We'll make this happen. We'll spend what we need to to keep the environment of Australia running. And we want you on the back of us doing that to do your part as well. So I, I took it as a signal in that way. How did you take it? I, I kind of thought of it in a very similar way. I, I You know, it's interesting because there was a lot of budget leaks before the budget. So everyone kind of knew there was a lot of money getting about to get pumped into the system. Colloquially, as, as someone who's a business owner and in the property space, I, I mean, I've seen uh, interest and activity increase dramatically over the past couple of weeks. Um, inquiries increased quite a lot. Um so from a from a consumer perspective, I can look at it from a couple of different ways. I feel my my consumer confidence is higher. You know, I'm thinking, okay, great. You know, what what can what other things can I do as a consumer that I do I feel more comfortable that our business is you know has greater stability and is going to be in growth mode and all of that kind of stuff. So I, I'm kind of thinking all of that kind of stuff too. And then I see a lot more other people who are much more comfortable and confident in having very robust conversations about entering into the market. In fact, the conversations that I'm having now are typically around like, okay, well, how do we buy two to three in the next 12 months? Not should I buy a property now? It is how do I buy two to three in the next 12 months? That's kind of, and so the conversations are radically different. Uh, I got to say a lot more fun too, by the way. And so I kind of see, I kind of see that same, that same viewpoint. I think that um, we've turned a bit of a corner now. There's tailwinds on the horizon. We're not out of the woods yet. You know, all you need to do is look overseas and see that, you know, globally, I think there's been the largest single day increase in coronavirus cases, um, Ever, I think. I think that's what I read today. Um, you know, UK is skyrocketing. You know, America is a bun fight. You know, Europe is a mess. You know, so we do have to be um, mindful that we're not out of the woods yet. And closed borders for for uh, an ex- an extended time, say more than twelve to twenty four months, would would likely cause some issues longer term. But I think that we have a lot of bandwidth in the system right now. I think it's great to see some relief. I think it's great to see some consumer confidence coming back. I think it's great to see good business support. Uh, I think it's great that there's money going back into the hands of the people. I think it's great that there was a, a very broad focused approach on liquidity, you know, across education, healthcare, infrastructure, jobs, business, tax. I think there was, I think it was really well spread. And I think that that uh, has overarching benefits uh, longer term as well. There's always going to be criticism around everything that you can never do enough for everyone. You can never solve every problem for everyone. And so undoubtedly, there will be people who completely missed out. Um, You know, I do think there probably could have been a lot more direct uh, response for the arts and entertainment industries. I think, you know, just to pause you there, I completely agree. I think that was a completely neglected area. I think there's inadvertent benefit to that industry because, well, for example, that construction worker that got something from it may now have the money to go see a show or see a movie or whatever it is, but they 
definitely was a bit of a gap there. Yeah, I saw a really great suggestion, just to go a little tangential, I saw a great suggestion by um, a columnist uh, talking about what would could be pre this is pre-budget, saying that one of the best ways we could probably think about uh, distributing liquidity is with a coupon-based system. So for example, give coupons to everyone, it could be a thousand dollar coupon for arts and entertainment. And yet, so you can have a thousand dollars, but you can only spend it on arts and entertainment activities and stuff like that. So you can directly ensure that the money you're putting into the system goes into certain sectors and gets spent in the right way, but again, get spent as trade revenue as opposed to just grants because trade revenue is obviously going to help support a lot more, you know, different parts of the system along the way. I thought that was a really good idea. I would have- that's, a, that's a really cool idea. And like tokens, you can spend with small business, but you can't actually spend it at any big businesses. Yeah, exactly. Or on- exactly. Yeah, yeah, exactly. Exactly. Like cafe vouchers, concert vouchers, stuff like that. So you could own it and you've got 12 months to use it, for example, and you could only go and spend it in certain industries, in certain places. I thought that was would have been a really awesome idea, and I would have liked to have I would have liked to have seen something like that because I think it would have been a bit of an in- innovative way to think about it, uh, and I think that that would have created um, a lot more stimulus. I mean, look, as someone who's who is you know uh, you know I was in the arts and entertainment industry for over fifteen years. I think it's very sad to see that that some segments have been completely forgotten. But as you say, when we have inadvertent benefits, you know, when we have consumer confidence increasing when we have, um, you know, tax cuts to businesses because promoters and music festivals and stuff, they are still, are still businesses. You know, there, there are a lot of incentives to try and increase liquidity to that front, maybe not enough to save a dying industry that's been severely impacted, probably the most impacted. So we'd like to have seen stuff like that. But by, by and large, um, I do see that uh, I do see that we're turning a corner here. And I think that my personal opinion is that given that we're in October right now, a lot of people aren't going to immediately see the benefit of this. And so between now and December, this is talking largely to, to the property sector, uh, I guess. I think a lot of people aren't going to take action this side of Christmas because everyone will say, ah, well, it's nearly Christmas. Let's get that out of the way. Hopefully, we can see friends and family. We'll do all that kind of stuff. And then we'll kind of think about getting into the property market uh, next year. By the time February or March comes next year, that liquidity, that the it's like when you turn the tap on waiting for the warm water to come out. It starts cool and then very quickly gets hot. And I think that's good. We've turned the tap on, but the hot water isn't being felt yet. But I think come February, March, the water is going to be very warm. And I think that's when everyone's going to start to pile in. So my view is that um, come February, come March, 2021, we're going to see an extremely, an extremely active uh, economy and an extremely active property sector. Yeah, interesting, interesting times. We might have to review this in six months from now to see if that whole water has come through as we're both kind of sitting from here. But what an exciting time in Australia. It makes things very, very interesting. Yeah, it certainly does. It certainly does. So, I mean, have we missed anything out here? Because we've talked about kind of tax benefits to business owners. We've talked about the stimulus broadly. We've talked about my very bullish sentiment on the property market <laughs> um, and all of that kind of stuff. Is there anything that you think we might have missed out on that might be beneficial to to people? Do you know what? I look at this right now and I just think it's the overarching theme here is just that sentiment has shifted. Yeah. I really, really feel like the sentiment overall in both property and business has turned a corner here. There's more optimism in the air. Yeah. Even I can taste it. Totally. I, 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 I wholeheartedly agree. And it's interesting as well because daylight savings has just come. There's more sunshine. There's more money getting pumped into the system. People are happier. There's a spring in their step. People are wearing shorts again and getting it. Maybe it's just because I'm in Bondi. Sorry, if you're down in Victoria, maybe that's not the case there. <laughs> but, but you know, I think, I think that um, energetically there's been a shift and I think it's a very welcome shift and hopefully one that is sustained for a very long time. Uh, I think we're at the start of something great. And I think right now 
there are, as you, as we've said, there are a lot of benefits to to businesses right now, which is which is it's been very much needed. It's been an extremely tough year for businesses. It's been an extremely tough year for for non businesses too. But I've got to say, businesses have been cataclysmically hit this year. It's been extremely tough for for a lot of people. So to see some tailwinds, uh, I think is I think it's fantastic, super exciting. Yeah, here, here. Nice. Well, on that note, Charlie, why don't we wrap it up for this one? Let's do it. Awesome, man. Thanks as ever. And guys, if you've enjoyed this, make sure you head to theinvestorlab.com.au. Check out the suite of free resources, tools, guides, and all of that kind of stuff. Books, contact, everything like that you can get there. And of course, if you're on Apple Podcasts or uh, if you're on Apple Podcasts, make sure you hit subscribe. Thanks again. Share this with someone you love and we look forward to seeing you on the next episode.